Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Connecticut is home to many historic sites, including ones just off the coast. Coming up where we live, Emeritus State Archaeologist Dr. Nicholas Bellantoni takes us on a journey, sharing his knowledge about the maritime sites, including shipwrecks along Connecticut's shoreline. We hear what happened to some of these ships and how they're being preserved. What questions did you have about shipwrecks off our coast? That conversation later. First, the largest hospital network in the state, Hartford HealthCare, has reached an agreement with the state labor department for its improper practice related to meal credit deductions for home health aides. The agreement returns nearly $479,000 in wages to 114 caregivers employed or once employed at Independence at Home, part of Hartford HealthCare. For more on this story, joining us is the reporter who uncovered the story, Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, who reported this for Connecticut Public. Jackie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. So I understand uh, when you worked on your story, uh, you started it by talking about 2019 when Hartford Health Care made a commitment um, to pay their workers at least the minimum wage. Tell us about that and then how you uncovered what was going on with these meal credit deductions. Sure. So back in 2019, Hartford Healthcare made a big splash that they were going to raise their minimum wage of what they pay their workers to $15 an hour. And it was widely covered in the news, broadcast, television covered it, newspapers covered it, radio covered it. Um, and it got a lot of fanfare as well from local politicians and state politicians um, who were gearing up to push for the state's minimum wage to increase to $15 an hour. And so, um, you know, there was this this conversation about the minimum wage and you see Hartford HealthCare being this, this good actor uh, in making this promise. And then, you know, fast forward several years and you, you have some home health aides who were coming forward and saying, hey, that's not necessarily the case. Um, but some of these home health aides are here on work visas and were afraid to really speak up um, and go public about this. And so eventually um, a couple of them did decide to, to share their story with me. And what they shared was, look, we're not making $15 an hour, and this is a year and a half after these promises were made to us. And oh, by the way, we're also getting $17.50 taken out of our paycheck for meals that we were never offered, we were never provided. And then when we asked for them to stop, they wouldn't stop. So tell us more about these home health aides. You know, what was their particular job? And when you mentioned the 1750, you know, how long this added up? Sure. So home health aides are a growing profession in throughout throughout the nation um, as more people want to live at home. Um, you know, there's a real push for people to keep people in their homes 
um, longer. It's not only more expensive, but it's more humane to keep people where they want to live um, rather than, you know, hospitalization or nursing homes, um, you know, allowing people to stay in their homes for longer. And in order to do that, you need um, some assistance sometimes. And so home health, that's where home health aides come in. Um, these are typically low wage workers. Um, they're also disproportionately Black and Hispanic. They're also um, disproportionately immigrants. Um, national and state data show that. And, and you also have um, this push to, to move towards this, but there's not necessarily a push to um, raise the wages. Um, you know, the, the state of Connecticut did raise the minimum wage eventually, um, to re and it will eventually get to $15 an hour, I think by next October, if I remember correctly. Um, but these, these home health aides are really sort of allowing people to stay in their homes longer. So, um, Wayne, the the gentleman that I featured in the story, he lived in the home of someone who had multiple strokes and was really struggling mentally to um, deal with that reality of um, not being able to go on long bicycle rides or travel the world. Um, and so Wayne gave up, you know, his family for months at a time to go live in the homes with people, um, and and in return. Um, he was paid $11.60 an hour. And when we get back to the, the meal credit deduction, because these home health aides are spending so much time in these residences taking care of uh, particular patients, you know, are they supposed to be uh, provided meals on their shifts? I'm just wondering, you know, how did Hartford HealthCare begin taking this $17.50 out of paychecks to begin with? So there is a process that allows for employers to deduct from someone's paycheck. Um, but there's a huge, there's a, there's a framework that has to be followed in order to do that. You need to have the Department of Labor sign off on the amount that's being taken out. And it can't just be a number taken out of thin air. It has to be based on actual, here's how much we are going to, here's how much it actually costs to provide three meals a day. Um, but those calculations were never done. And then, uh, but then they were still charged and no meals were provided. And then on the other side for the, the clients, those who are um, needing these services of people like Wayne and other folks um, who are living in their homes or caring or coming to their homes every day and caring for them, they were still being charged uh, or they were being told, if you don't provide the meals to your home health aides, you will be charged a hefty fine. And so the onus was really put on the client to, while this person's in your home, you need to feed them. And so um, there was a process that was allowed to be followed to charge people, but it was not followed here at all. You also talked to someone um, who Wayne worked for, um, the spouse that um, had the, the multiple strokes, and this person went to the Department of Labor and inquired about this, and that's what got the investigation rolling? Yeah, so Suzanne Hopgood, she, um, Wayne was living with her, and she had a few other um, folks before Wayne at a different um, organization, and um, she found out that Wayne wasn't making this and Wayne all along, he never told her that this thing was happening to him, that $17 and 50 cents was being taken out of his paycheck or that he wasn't making $15 an hour. Um, he 
he wanted to be there for Frank was the name of her husband. Um, he wanted to be there for Frank when Frank was really struggling. Frank eventually passed away. Um, and he thought that was more important than some, a tr- what he thought was a trivial issue of some money being taken out of his paycheck. You had someone who was in the last days of his life that he wanted to be there for them instead of burden them with, with this, this terrible thing that was also happening to him. And so, um, Suzanne and Wayne stayed in touch and several months later they were talking because Suzanne was was thinking about donating money to help workers like Wayne and and her previous caregivers and she said what could you know what could have helped you and what what Wayne said was well you know what could have helped is that if the $17.50 wasn't being taken out of my paycheck and and she was just flummoxed because she was she was like what that I I don't understand how this is possible. Um, you know, it sounds like that's not allowed. Um, but then Hartford Healthcare informed her that it is allowed, that they are following the law. They weren't going to, they um, they were going to change the practice to stop charging it. Um, but they weren't, they didn't have plans to reimburse for all the money that had been taken away. And so the pay stubs that I, I have seen from workers shows that this adds up to thousands of dollars a year. So Wayne had well over $2,000 taken out of his paycheck the year that I saw. Um, and then previous years, um, even larger amounts. And so uh, when you look at just how much money we're talking about here, $17.50 um, each day might not sound a lot, but it really adds up very quickly. Especially when people are paid minimum or below uh, minimum wage, uh, Jackie. You're hearing reporter Jacqueline Rabe Thomas here on the show as we learn about this practice of, uh, that through Hartford Healthcare, their uh, independence at home, uh, part of their healthcare system that provides home health aids. Uh, they had been taking out meal credit deductions out of the workers' paychecks. Uh, uh, people complained, as we heard in Jackie's story as well, and the Department of Labor got involved. And so what was the agreement or settlement, Jackie? So the settlement, after the Department of Labor um, said, hey, I don't think this is um, this is all on board. We're going to open an investigation into this. And they found that these meals were improperly being charged um, of workers. And so the settlement that they reached with Hartford Healthcare was to look back two years. So they they looked back um, 22 months, actually. Um, the Department of Labor only has the ability to look back two years from the date the complaint is made. And so they, they went back as far as they could on that. Um, they also wanted to make sure that these workers got reimbursed as quickly as possible. And so um, they also agreed to waive the interest payments that state law allows the Department of Labor to levy on the money that was withheld. So the um, state law allows for 1% interest for each month that the money is withheld. And so, you know, money from three years ago, that easily adds up to 36% interest. And so um, they waived that and then they cut in half the fine that was levied on the um, Hartford Healthcare. And that was all done um, because to avoid a long protracted legal um, argument and having to go to court to potentially be litigated. 
Uh, we also heard from Hartford Healthcare in a statement this morning. In part, it reads, uh, reads rather, we recognize, however, that Independence at Home was not ensuring proper record keeping regarding the meals the caregiver received each day. We worked with the Department of Labor to examine and resolve this issue, and we have reimbursed caregivers for meal credits for the two-year time frame requested by the Department of Labor. Also, we will take the additional step to reimburse live-in caregivers for the meal credits dating back to January 2016 when the meal credit practice began. Uh, Jackie, what's your response uh, to the statement we received? I, I think that's going to cost them a lot of money, um, but I think it's the money that was taken out of paychecks that um, the law never allowed for it to be taken out to begin with. Um, I am curious if they're going to pay um, $15 an hour to those workers as well. Uh, earlier, you mentioned um, how the reliance on home, home health aides has skyrocketed uh, nationwide. And I'm wondering when we think about, you know, how uh, workers are treated in terms of pay, in terms of benefits, uh, vacations time, this is something that continues to need to be looked at. And I'm wondering, you know, what's next in terms of looking at this particular story? So there is a part two to this story um, that Connecticut Public will be airing. Um, reporter Brenda Leon is working on it diligently and it should be publishing soon that looks at um, the role that domestic workers and home health aides, nannies, et cetera, um, and the protections that they do and don't have. Um, I'll tease it as there are huge loopholes um, that still exist. Uh, Connecticut has been working to close some of those loopholes, things like providing the protections for these workers to file harassment and discrimination complaints. Um, nationally, um, that's not the case, but in Connecticut, they have given domestic workers a bill of rights to allow them to do that here. You've been hearing Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, who reported the story for Connecticut Public. This note, she's starting a new job with Hearst, Connecticut. Uh, all the best to you, Jackie, but I know I look forward to having you on the show again to talk about your continued investigative reporting in the state. Thank you so much, Lucy. Again, that's Jacqueline Rabe Thomas. We'll make sure we link uh, to that story on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Now, after the break, one of my favorite movies as a kid was The Goonies. A long lost ship, a prominent feature of that movie, a journey to find lost treasure. But did you ever think about the maritime sites off the coast of Connecticut? Emeritus state archeologist, Dr. Nick Bellantoni takes us on a journey, including some notable shipwrecks right off our coast. We'll learn more after a short break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. 
ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Hey, Mike found a map. Yeah. Hey, look, look, look. That says 1632. Is that a year something? No, it's your top score on pole position. Yes, it's a year, Chuck. Look, look, it's a map of our coastline. What's all that Spanish junk right there? Uh, who knows? Mouth, mouth, you said you could translate. Translate, right here. Yeah, translate it. Ye intruders beware. Crushing death and grief. Soaked with blood of the trespassing thief. You guys, this map is old news. Everybody and their grandfather went looking for that when our parents were our age. I mean, I mean, haven't you ever heard of that guy? What, what's his name? Uh, the pirate guy. One-Eyed Willie. One-Eyed Willie. That clip is from The Goonies, an 80s movie about a group of kids searching for a lost ship and its treasure. Did you ever think about the notable maritime sites and shipwrecks off Connecticut's shoreline? Dr. Nicholas Bellantoni is the guy to ask. He's Emeritus State Archaeologist with the Connecticut State Museum of Natural History. He teaches at UConn and he joins us now by Zoom. Nick, welcome back to the show. Hey, good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me back. Now, I imagine uh, some of the shipwrecks that uh, you know about are not the result of old, dusty maps uh, found in attics. So you're going to be talking more about Connecticut shipwrecks at the Mattituck Museum later this week. There's information on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Uh, but tell us about some notable maritime sites and how you got interested in all of this. Well, basically, my background is not underwater archaeology. I'm kind of the, the guy that d- dealt with mostly skeletal remains in my career. But as the state archaeologist, I was responsible for the preservation of archaeological sites, terrestrial on the on our ground, if you will, within our soils, but also underwater. So that got us involved with um, recreation uh, divers. It also got us involved with uh, the State Historic Preservation Office, and also uh, the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection's Long Island Sound Program, and even at the federal level, the National Park Service, as well as NOAA, uh, in terms of understanding better what kind of cultural resources we had under our waters. And that, of course, includes shipwrecks. So much of our study was not through old maps, uh, but basically um, doing surveys underwater, side scan sonars um, and other techniques uh, to help us understand what might be there and and certainly to preserve them for the public into the future. And we think about the history of Connecticut uh, long before uh, we were here. We know Native American sites, uh, dugout canoes that have been found in some of the lakes in Connecticut. So tell us more about maritime archaeology and some of these sites that are notable, Nick. Sure. Uh, you know, in maritime archaeology, we include not just simply the what's in Long Island Sound, say, along our coast, but in our lakes, just as you described. Uh, Native Americans, for literally thousands of years, made dugout canoes. They would take trees, fell them, burn them in, in terms of uh, hollowing out uh, uh, the interior of the canoe, 
Um, and some of these were deliberately sunk in some cases beneath our lakes, our natural lakes, and uh, as to be gotten back later. Uh, so, um, and they have been discovered under our waters. Um, and, and when I say canoes uh, of Native American origin, you know, we think of the birch bark canoes, uh, but that's mostly a Northern Europe, uh, excuse me, Northern New England uh, phenomena. Here in Connecticut, Rhode Island, they mostly made dugouts, actually hollowing out trees. Uh, and some of these were formidable. Roger Williams, who uh, befriended the Narragansetts and founded Providence, um, he writes in his journals that um, the Narragansetts had um, canoes that could fit 40 people. Uh, and these were kind of, I suppose you want to say, ocean-going vessels. We know from archaeological sites on Long Island, Block Island, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, that Native Americans maritimely were, you know, were crisscrossing uh, to these islands um, um, where they had family and uh, and would utilize the natural resources that were out there. So, you know, when we think of shipwrecks during the 17th, 18th, and 19th, and even 20th centuries, um, we, we don't want to uh, forget that Native Americans were quite comfortable out there in the waters and contributed to, um, you know, our maritime history. So when you find a particular um, site, and let's start with a Native American site and one of the lakes in Connecticut, how do you work with uh, local uh, town officials and others to preserve these sites, Nick? Yeah, well, that's, that's we work not only with uh, local town officials uh, and state officials uh, in terms of these kind of sites, but also if, if we're dealing with Native American sites, we, we work with uh, the Connecticut tribes. Uh, and we work very closely with them to not only help us identify and interpret what we have, but it's very important that we preserve these. These are, you know, when it comes to underwater resources, just as terrestrial uh, cultural resources, uh, they're, they're always endangered and uh, need to be preserved. So working within, you know, local, state and federal uh, governmental hierarchies and tribal uh, governments, um, it really gives us our best chance to preserve these. And, and we preserve them for the public. We preserve them for researchers, but also so that the public can learn and understand more about Connecticut's role um, going back thousands of years in our coastal waters. You're hearing Dr. Nicholas Bellantoni here on Where We Live, Emeritus State Archaeologist. As we learn about the maritime sites and some shipwrecks off Connecticut's shore, also some sites found in lakes around our state. If you have a question, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I mentioned shipwrecks, and I'm thinking about the Connecticut River, some notable sites, including Aunt Polly. Tell us about that one. Yeah, the Aunt Polly was uh, William Gillette, the actor's um, um, yacht, if you will, at, at the turn of the 20th century. It was a beautiful, beautiful uh, vessel. Uh, he had a library on board, and he actually lived on uh, the yacht when he was building Gillette's Castle uh, that is available to the public today as a state park. Uh, and when he finally finished the castle and moved up into it, uh, about a week or two later, uh, the yacht mysteriously burns at its moor uh, on the Connecticut River. Uh, and that yacht, uh, while it is no longer um, uh, serviceable, uh, is still there by the moor. And 
visitors to uh, Gillette's castle can actually um, see the vessel at low tide. It's, it becomes somewhat exposed, covered during high tide. But it was uh, quite a um, quite a one of those you know vessels, if you will, from the that turn of the you know the the Gilded Age, uh, that turn of the 20th century, were very prominent and, and wealthy people uh, had their own private yachts, and they, they still do today, obviously. But uh, kind of a, a Gilded Age artifact, and uh, we worked with the folks at Gillette's Castle as well as our archaeologists from the University of Connecticut to go down and document that uh, that vessel. Uh, uh, and it's really quite neat in terms of Connecticut history. Coincidentally, uh, Peter Martika, who's a journalist in Connecticut, had tweeted over the weekend a picture uh, from, I believe, a, a state resident of the remains of this houseboat, Aunt Polly. I just retweeted it um, at Lucy VN. Uh, really fascinating uh, to see that, um, as you mentioned, uh, Nick, when the water's low enough uh, uh, to see the remains of this uh, this houseboat. Yeah, it's one of those uh, underwater archaeological sites you don't have to dive to get down to. You can actually see it during low tide. And anybody interested, I would, you know, uh, on your next visit to uh, Gillette's Castle, go in and, and talk to the rangers and so forth, and they will help you uh, to get a glimpse of. Um, in fact, if I understand correctly, they're in the process of doing a new exhibit on the Aunt Polly. So, um, you, you know, contact the, uh, the, the rangers at, at, at the state park and they will assist you in seeing it. So we've talked about uh, some lakes in Connecticut, the Connecticut River, but how about off Long Island Sound? There's a Cornfield Point vessel. What happened, Nick? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting uh, uh, shipwreck uh, in Long Island. Uh, first of all, just to, just to note, you know, Long Island Sound was an extremely important body of water throughout um, colonial history and, and the early history of our republic, uh, not only for transportation, but military, uh, movement of, of goods, uh, you know, commerce. Um, so ships were going back and forth. And literally, we now have hundreds of various shipwrecks. Uh, uh, those we, we have not even discovered yet. Uh, uh, under our waters. The Cornfield Point Lightship um, was built around the turn of the 20th century. It was a, a ship that was uh, would go out uh, from its port uh, um, in Old Saybrook, go out to uh, the middle of the sound or wherever during storms and serve as a beacon to help guide uh, ships through that area. It is the first light ship that was ever electrified and it was electrified by Thomas Edison's company. Um, so it's a very prominent uh, and very important vessel. Well, I think it was in 1909, it was out there doing its job. It's a Coast Guard vessel doing its job, uh, help assisting um, navigation during a storm and it collided with a barge uh, and it sank and it sank in very deep waters. It, it's down at a, um, 190 feet which is a very dangerous dive uh, uh, in Long Island Sound. Um, and so for many, many, many years, uh, uh, wreck divers and others have been looking for this vessel unsuccessfully. We got involved with them um, working together jointly uh, and with the Long Island Sound program to use, scan the area uh, of where we thought, based on historic documents, the, the shipwreck occurred, and we did side scan sonars. 
and we swept the Long Island Sound going back and forth uh, in that area of the mouth of the Connecticut River, and we got a hit. And uh, it was a very distinct image. Uh, the vessel is actually sitting at the bottom of Long Island Sound on its hull, so its masts uh, are still upright. Uh, we sent divers down. Again, it's a very dangerous dive at that depth, but they went down, photographed, and um, were able to uh, find the ship's bell. Uh, the ship's bell was photographed, and so we had uh, absolute, uh, and of course, the, the hull with the name Cornfield Point Lightship um, uh, on it uh, made a positive identification. That site today is a state archaeological preserve recognized for its historic significance in the state of Connecticut. And um, we, we leave it as um, not only a testament to that early uh, history, um, uh, but also um, Coast Guard crew members went down with that vessel and there could still be skeletal remains associated with them under Long Island Sound. So we, we want to make, you know, we want to make that clear uh, uh, that, you know, some of these shipwrecks are not just, you know, uh, um, you know, wooden and, and metal uh, uh, artifacts, uh, but they are, in fact, and can be, in fact, um, you know, burials and needed to be treated with respect. That's an important point, uh, Nick. And we think about how a local diver first came upon this discovery and how, um, you know, so many people work together uh, with this technology, as you mentioned, uh, to find the cornfield. But I'm wondering when we think about, uh, you know, how people should, if they encounter uh, something in the water and, you know, who has the rights uh, to what is found? Can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, yeah, we, you know, in my tenure, we, we worked uh, very closely with uh, wreck diving uh, groups around the state of Connecticut. It's it really important that we, we entered into a partnership of preservation. We want them to be able to enjoy their activity as divers, but what we want them to do is leave artifacts, leave remnants of, of the vessels alone so they could be preserved for the future when we would have better technology to get more information from these ships but using underwater techniques but also so that there will be, you know, shipwrecks available to their children and grandchildren. If they strip these um, vessels, not only are they really destroying a, a cultural resource, but they're taking away an activity that their children might enjoy. So uh, enjoy the dive, uh, but leave everything alone. Um, we, we feel that that is extremely important. If a diver or anyone else should believe that they have found a vessel or something underwater that might be of cultural significance, I would encourage them to contact the Office of State Archaeology at the University of Connecticut. Um, Sarah Sportman is the current state archaeologist, and, and we keep a database up at UConn uh, with her office of all known shipwrecks and other cultural resources um, in, in Connecticut's waters. So it would not only add to our databases for preservation purposes, but um, it would be really important to work together to see that uh, those uh, those resources are documented. We understand the history of it and certainly uh, preserve it for the future. Nick, are, is that database accessible to the public if they wanted to learn more? Uh, uh, not really. <laughs> we, uh, you know, we're always worried about vandalism uh, mm -hmm. and we will work with divers uh, 
um, that are working with us, if you want to say it that way, to be sure that they too, uh, uh, we, we want them to dive on these vessels because um, you, you know what? They're the ones that have the eyes to, to, to see and, and, and the ability to get down there and they can help us preserve these. So we want to work uh, in partnerships with them, but we, we don't normally release the information to just anybody. Uh, we need to know uh, more about, um, you know, uh, the group or the activity taking place. Mm -hmm. Understood. You're hearing with us Dr. Nicholas Bellantoni, Emeritus State Archaeologist, as we learn more about maritime archaeology, uh, the uh, remains of, of ships uh, off our coast as well as in our lakes and the Connecticut River. If you have a question for Nick, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, you mentioned uh, some of the Coast Guard members uh, that uh, died uh, when the Cornfield Point vessel uh, was rammed by a barge. Uh, again in around in the 1900s when we think about uh, Connecticut's ship uh, industry and its history you know how uh, common were these shipwrecks uh, uh, Nick oh they you know the, it was uh, the waters get pretty nasty and uh, you know they uh, they literally you know it, it's once said uh, uh, one underwater archaeologist referred to you could walk from Stonington Connecticut to Narragansett Bay and uh, uh, well, I guess dive, you wouldn't be able to walk underwater, right? But you would literally go from one shipwreck to another all the way across. So, uh, you know, when you look at Long Island, uh, you know, around Orient Point, Block Island, especially the south shore of Block Island, just uh, I mean, shipwreck after shipwreck. So you're talking 400, maybe even 500 years of, of, of shipping um, historically and uh, there are a number of wrecks, uh, some of which we, we're, we, we do not even know about and others that have at least been documented. Uh, one that we learned about with a wreck diver um, had to be, uh, deal with a, with a schooner uh, in the 1860s during the, during the Civil War, actually. Uh, the schooner left Portland, Connecticut on the Connecticut River uh, uh, from the Brownstone Quarry, where we have those recreational uh um, uh, enter adventure enterprises today. When that was being quarried, that much, some of that brownstone was actually going to Manhattan to be used in brownstone buildings and so forth in, in the, in the mid-19th century development of, of, uh, of Manhattan. And one particular vessel left Portland um, heading for Manhattan and never arrived. Um, there was a, we do, do know from the records, there was a, was, there was a, a major storm uh, on the waters, uh, but nobody ever knew what happened to that vessel uh, until a wreck diver uh, working off the coast of uh, Westport uh, came across something uh, and reported it to us. And we went down there. They dove on it across the, if you will, the um, uh, perpendicular laying across the, the vessel, um, the, the mid in the, in the bow section were these large slabs of brownstone that had been quarried uh, and were being prepared to, to go into um, a Manhattan um, uh, and then re, you know, recut to fit for the brownstones uh, that they were building. Nobody knew what happened to that vessel, and now we do. Uh, and uh, um, it's really an extraordinary little sight.
You're listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, my guest, Emeritus State Archaeologist, Dr. Nick Bellantoni, who's taking us on a journey to learn about maritime archaeology, including some shipwrecks off of Connecticut's coast and in other places. More with him right after a short break. And if you have a question, you can join us as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, Connecticut families and educators are preparing for the back-to-school season. On the next Where We Live, we sit down with State Department of Education Commissioner Charlene Russell-Tucker for the hour. What questions do you have for her? You can join us, too, that conversation tomorrow. Today, my guest is Dr. Nicholas Bellantoni, Connecticut Emeritus Archaeologist, as we talk about notable maritime sites off our coast, including shipwrecks. What questions do you have? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, you mentioned earlier, Nick, it's important to work with a variety of people um, when some of these maritime sites are found. You mentioned this database uh, and, um, and also mapping, but I'm imagining this is also expensive work. And so can you get more into that with us? Oh, sure. And it really is. What we have done is, uh, you know, work with uh, Avery Point, UConn's Avery Point campus that has been involved in uh, remapping uh, the coastline of, of, of Connecticut uh, along Long Island Sound. And, and that mapping project uh, we, we tap into because of the fact that, you know, sometimes you get a little subtle, you know, mounding, if you will, um, uh, along the coast. And those mounds could be either natural deposits or they could be because there's something buried underneath it. Uh, Connecticut waters have a lot of, uh, especially Long Island Sound, have a lot of silt. And the silts that drain down the Connecticut, the Thames, the, the Housatonic Rivers, and, you know, they build up a lot of silt. And as a result, in many cases, um, shipwrecks, if you will, get literally buried and become much more difficult for us to to find. Uh, the, the other issue, too, is that uh, because of all that silt and because Long Island blocks us from the main ocean, um, you know, Connecticut's coastal waters, if you will, uh, 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 are very murky and very difficult to see in. So if, you know, uh, some of my divers tell us that you know, in some cases they can't they can can't see beyond the length of their arm. So to be able to identify these is very difficult, and as you can imagine, time consuming. But working with Avery Point, working also with NOAA, uh, NOAA uh, years ago was involved with remapping the bottom of Long Island Sound to see where areas needed to be dredged to maintain navigation. And um, sometimes in that uh, work, they would use side scan sonars and so forth. They may hit uh, um, um, an anomaly and um, send a diver down. And if they identified it as a shipwreck or some other kind of cultural resource, um, 
then um, they would report it to our, our offices, the Office of State Archaeology and the State Historic Preservation Office. So um, that's how working together and also working with wreck divers. Uh, we have had many wreck divers report uh, shipwrecks to us in the past. Uh, I remember one uh, in um, the Connecticut River just north of um, Goodspeed uh, Lighthouse, uh, excuse me, uh, the Goodspeed uh, uh, Godspeed Theater, um, and that area of um, where the bridge is, the swing bridges, um, just north of that, they had been diving and they found a vessel with, um, um, you know, uh, it was probably a, a early 20th century wreck that went down. Uh, there was a lot of metal uh, and so forth that we were able to uh, recover, uh, not recover, but uh, record. We took photographs of it, videos of it, uh, and now have that in our database also. So working with a lot of different agencies, some governments, some private uh, local folks, um, trying to put together the best database we can on a very difficult uh, type of resource to identify and certainly, as you mentioned, very expensive. Have you ever worked with Robert Ballard? I know our listeners are probably aware that he lives in Connecticut. He's been on our show as well. Oh, yes. Well, we, we haven't <laughs> personally worked with Bob, but um, one of my colleagues, Kevin McBride, who's a professor uh, um, at the University of Connecticut in archaeology, uh, Bob and Kevin uh, worked on using, uh, working with their submersibles to go down along the coast uh, to see, if, again, if they could find uh, any evidence of Native American sites. Um, now, you know, we, we think of, you know, um, sea level rise right now because of climate change and the melting of our glaciers. Well, you know, uh, you know, 20,000 years ago, the glaciers started to melt here, uh, releasing the ice from Connecticut around 15,000 years ago. But all that melting eventually raised uh, dramatically um, the sea level uh, right up to about 4,000 years ago. So as a result, there are many Native American sites that are now submerged. These could be, you know, uh, camps, villages, and so forth uh, that are no longer uh, uh, above water. So uh, I know Bob and Kevin uh, did a, a major project, seeing if they could locate uh, such sites uh, under the water. I know we've been focused on uh, maritime archaeology today, uh, Nick, but as Emeritus State Archaeologist, I wanted to hear uh, from you about your perspective to save notable sites in our state. Uh, you told the New York Times in 1988 that about 65% of all archaeological sites are in immediate danger of destruction. The estimate then was we lose something like 120 sites or more a year. And you said the majority of that, 70%, is due to economic development, another 20 to vandalism, and 10% to erosion and other natural causes. What does it look like today? Well, it's, uh, hopefully it's improved. Um, you know, back then, uh, there were very few uh, regulations for the consideration of historical and archaeological sites in economic development projects. Um, there was more vandalism going on, uh, I suspect, at that time also for collections. Um, so I like to think those numbers have improved. But, you know, archaeological sites uh, in Connecticut are, um, you know, they're like an endangered species. You know, when you lose one, you can't get it back again. If a bulldozer cuts through and destroys a Native American site that's four or 5,000 years old, we can't reconstruct that anymore. 
um, it, it, it's, we have one chance at it. And that's why, you know, we don't always like to excavate. What we like to do is preserve in place because, you know, again, I think of my students and, 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 and future generations of archaeologists, be they underwater or on the ground, are going to have far better technology, far better methods of extracting more information from these sites than we're capable of even getting today. Uh, and so we need to preserve those sites for that uh, and also for the heritages of, of everyone that's been uh, uh, occupying this, this state. So, um, yeah, um, what we work very hard and Sarah Sportman does today is to work with municipalities, especially in their land use decision making capabilities. Um, if we're going to review a subdivision, a shopping mall, a golf course, make sure that archaeology, archaeological sites and historic sites are considered in the review process, much like the natural resources and wetlands, um, so that not to be, uh, you know, inhibit development, but to work with development to see that cultural resources are preserved for the future. It's, 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 it's critical. And, you know, uh, it's a finite resource. <laughs> there aren't many sites left, and those that are there need to be preserved. You're hearing Emeritus State Archaeologist, Dr. Nicholas Bellantoni, here where we live. If you have a question for him, we can fit you in before uh, we run out of time. Again, our number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Chris shared this on Facebook, wanted to know if you've done any research on the Mystic River near the site of the Battle of Mystic. Uh, Chris works at the Mystic Seaport Museum and writes, we're always looking for ways to highlight the narratives, narratives of our indigenous partners. Well, that's that was an important battle, uh, the Battle of Stonington and Mystic and that whole area. Um, we have never worked on a shipwreck uh, that I'm aware of in that area, though there are many uh, that we could predict are in the area. The, the, the Battle of Stonington and um, uh, Stonington Borough, my, uh, my favorite archaeological story is not necessarily an underwater one, but uh, it turns out when the British, uh, during the War of 1812, uh, attacked Stonington, Connecticut, um, they bombarded for two or three days uh, the, 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 the village with armament. Well, a woman, um, who, who, I believe her name was Hedda, she... <laughs> Um, she was unfortunately uh, had a heart attack in her bed and died during the bombardment. And what the locals did was buried her very quickly uh, in a crater that had occurred in a local cemetery from the British bombardment. Uh, and supposedly uh, lore is that they buried her in the bed and everything. They just put it in the ground and covered it over uh, uh, very hastily. Well, we did some uh, ground penetrating radar with our colleagues at the uh, Natural Resources uh, 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 Conservation Service. And we went out and doing the uh, ground penetrating radar in the cemetery. We actually able, were able to find the crater and somewhat document the story of, of Hedda uh, and uh, her burial uh, in, a, in a bomb crater. Kind of maritime in the terms of the uh, you know, the bombardment by the, uh, the British Navy. Uh, but one of my favorite stories. We're almost out of time uh, for our listeners who want to learn more without diving. <laughs> Nick, uh, where can they go? 
Well, uh, the office, the Connecticut State Museum of Natural History had um, on their website has information um, of what uh, people can do to report sites and get information. We had an exhibit many years ago on underwater archaeology in Connecticut and highlighted a number of, uh, of sites, some of which we, we spoke about this morning. Um, so uh, go look, uh, Connecticut State Museum of Natural History at the University of Connecticut, and, um, and also the Office of Connecticut State Archaeology at UConn. And for listeners who want to learn more about this particular subject of maritime sites and archaeology, as well as uh, more about these shipwrecks, uh, Dr. Nicholas Bellantoni again, who is the uh, state emeritus archaeologist, giving a talk at the Mattituck Museum, that information on our website. What did you want to leave us with, Nick? Well, yeah, just saying, you know, come on out to the Mattituck. I would just... Uh... Uh, you know, uh, it's nice to do an in-person presentation. So we're looking forward to interacting with, with uh, folks that are interested. And, and just to say thank you, Lucy, it's great to be with you again. Mm. Always a pleasure to have you on. Fascinating stuff. And it's been great to, to learn from you today. Dr. Nicholas Bellantoni, again, uh, who's the Emeritus State Archaeologist. His talk at the Mattituck at ctpublic.org slash where we live for more information. Uh, today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our tech director is Kat Pastor. Again, tomorrow we're going to have the State Education Commissioner Charlene Russell Tucker on the hour to answer all of your questions as well. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.